you, Kristen. There's actually a place in the Gospel of Luke where it says that as the disciples heard the word of God, their hearts were strangely warmed. Some of you are wishing the room would be strangely warmed right now, but uh, thank you for enduring um, that. We'll try to get that, that heat fixed uh, in the course of this week. Um, if I don't know you, my name's Charlie Dunn, and if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then uh, we've been in a teaching series uh, called The Questions uh, Jesus Asks. And uh, this is a series that we're doing because uh, more than anybody else in the Bible, uh, Jesus asks a number of questions. Uh, more than 300 questions in the Gospels alone. And Jesus asks these questions. I think I'm going to switch over. Is that on, Andre? Is that better? Less popping? Okay, great. So Jesus asks a lot of questions, and he asks questions because he wants to engage people, and he wants to draw them into a deep relationship uh, with him. And, you know, good questions can have that effect. There have actually been a number of studies that have been done on the effect of asking good questions. Questions, they, they stimulate our curiosity, Questions grow our emotional intelligence, they enhance our leadership, they even increase your chances of getting a second date. So if any of you are uh, trying to, to, to find someone to date, asking questions is a pretty good word of advice because questions uh, demonstrate interest. Um, questions have a way of, of, of building trust and they're often met with fresh questions in return. Asking and genuinely listening to the other person is one of the best ways to build thick, deep friendships and relationships, the kind of relationships that we long for and need. Uh, but we recognize that, that a good question alone can't establish that relationship. It takes more than a good question, doesn't it? It also depends upon the response to that question. Um, so in our family, to give you an example right now, um, if I were to go to my wife, Brandy, and I were to notice that she's doing something around the house, maybe she's cleaning dishes, she's folding laundry, if I were to walk up to her and I were to ask her the question, can I help you? Uh, most likely, that's going to be met with a welcome response. She's going to say, yes, absolutely, you can dry these dishes, you can fold these socks. And for me to ask her that question, the relational outcome is that now, right, we're probably closer. There's some gratitude, there's some more intimacy by virtue of me asking that question. But if I were to go to our two-year-old son, Patton, and if I were to ask him that very same question, you know, Patton is learning his independence right now, and if I were to notice that he's trying to take his jacket off and it's got that elastic around the sleeves and so he can't quite get it off, and if I were to say to him, Patton, can I help you? He's going to say, no, Pat Pat do it. Right? He's not going to be grateful for my offer of help. Actually, he may push me away. He may get irritated. He may get frustrated in that moment. The relational outcome is not greater closeness, but actually greater distance. The same question 
can have very different relational outcomes depending upon the response to it. And what we have in these really two stories, these two scenes that Kristen read for us a moment ago in Mark chapter 10, what we have is this this really intentional contrast where in the course of 15 verses in these two scenes, Jesus asks the very same question. Did you notice that? He says, what do you want me to do for you? It's a really profound question. What do you want me to do for you? And yet in the course of these two scenes, Mark pairs them together because he wants us to see it makes all the difference in the world how you respond to that question, what the relational outcome will be. Makes all the difference in the world how you respond to that question, whether you walk away feeling like your heart has been satisfied. You are closer to Jesus than before. Or you walk away feeling thwarted, your desires unmet, distant from Jesus. In these two stories, you see that these two contrasting relational outcomes, either distant and thwarted or satisfied and close, all depending upon how we respond to that question Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And so let's look at these two different scenes together, these two different outcomes this morning. So here's the first scene. First scene is thwarted and distant, James and John. These are two of Jesus' closest disciples. They're part of his inner ring of disciples. They come to Jesus with not a question. They come not even with a request. It's more like a demand. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Beware of anyone who comes to you with that request. That's like saying, here is a blank check. I want you to sign it. Don't ask any questions. We want you to do whatever we ask. I mean, how is that for a way to approach the king of the universe? You could imagine Jesus just saying, start over. Come back in, try another approach. But he doesn't do that. And what's amazing to me is not only are they so brazen in this request, but they're also so emotionally insensitive. You might notice that at the very beginning of this this verse, there's the little word then. And maybe we can put that up on the screen. Then, that's that's a temporally connecting word. That's Mark saying you want to pay attention to what came right before this. So what happened right before this is Jesus is bearing his heart to his disciples He's telling them that he is about to suffer. He's going to be brutally beaten. He's going to die in a humiliating way. Jesus has been pouring out his heart to his disciples. And what do they do? They immediately start angling for positions of power and influence within his new administration. I mean, I guess it would be like a little bit like if maybe you were sharing a struggle uh, with a good friend some kind of marriage struggle or financial issue and you're kind of bearing your heart to them and and suddenly they start you know updating their Facebook profile they're taking a selfie for Instagram they're booking a tea time for later in the week as you're trying to bear your heart to them you think gosh how insensitive is that And, and yet here is Jesus he's just been explaining how he's about to suffer 
And, and his disciples come to him and they're saying, Jesus, we want these positions of power and influence in your administration. I mean, it's amazing to me that Jesus doesn't look at them and say, you guys are the worst, like the worst disciples. How could you be so insensitive? How could you be so uncaring for what I'm going through? And it just, it just amazes me about Jesus, the way that he can be so gracious, so servant-hearted, so caring, even when his disciples are at their worst. James and John, they come to Jesus with this request, and what does Jesus say to them? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't yell at them. He says, what do you want me to do for you? It's like a, like a customer service-minded question. How can I help you? And it's genuine. What do you want me to do for you? James and John answer, and they say, Jesus, we want, when you come into your glory, we want for one of us to sit at your right hand and the other to sit on your left. In other words, what they're saying is, Jesus, we understand you're supposed to be at the center. We understand you are most important. We get it. You're on the throne. You're the king. That's wonderful. We're on board with that. We know that you are most important, but we would like a little bit of prominence too. We'd like a little bit of status too. We'd like a little bit of distinction as well. What are they asking for? They're asking for significance. They want to know that they matter that they're important, for other people to see that they matter, for other people to see that they're important. And, you know, before we gang up on these disciples too much, before we, you know, are too hard on them, it's probably good for us to recognize that we want the same thing, don't we? We want to matter. We want to feel significant. We want to feel like our lives are important too, and and often for other people to see us uh, in that way. We long for that as well. But at some level, I would suggest to you, maybe the disciples are actually a little further along than we are. Because at least they're honest. At least they're willing to to tell Jesus exactly what it is that they really want. You and I, we might not be so honest with ourselves. We might not be so honest with Jesus. Maybe there's a big difference between what we would say we really want Versus deep down what we do really want. You know, if you are single and you are looking to date and somebody in your community group asks you, you know, what what are you looking for in a spouse? You might know what you're supposed to say. Well, I want somebody who's godly, somebody who's kind, somebody who's servant-hearted. But then what what do you really want? You want someone who's attractive, somebody who's fun, maybe even a little dangerous, but also has a very secure, well-paying job. There's what you might say that you want, and there's what you actually want. You know, Brandy and I did this interview the other night with a friend of ours. She's taken a family systems counseling class, and she said, can we ask you some questions for this class? And one of her questions was, you know, what are your goals for your child? And there's what we would say we want, right? We want Patton to be somebody who grows up to have, you know, humility and character, to deeply love Jesus, to be inclusive of others. But then there's also that part of you where you say, well, I, I want him, you know, to, to, be, to be somebody where people look at him and say, man, what amazing parents you must have to be so fantastic. There's what you say you want, and there's what you really want. There's where we say we find our significance, and then there's where we really find our significance. And, 
You see, at least the, the disciples are honest. At least they're willing to tell Jesus, this is what we really want. We want to sit at your right hand. We want to sit at your left hand. The problem is not that they ask. The problem is not even that their desires are not the most you know, selfless or noble sorts of desires. The problem is not that they ask. The problem is not that they have these desires. The problem is they are so convinced that this is what they need. They're so convinced that this is what actually will be for their good. They're so convinced that this is where they are going to find that significance that their hearts long and hunger for, that they are utterly unreceptive to the correction that Jesus gives. Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. And Jesus means that in two senses. He means it in a literal sense, and this is a bit ironic. Because what do they ask for? They say, Jesus, we want to sit at your right hand and at your left hand when you come into your glory. But if anybody here knows the rest of the gospel story, when does Jesus most manifest and display his glory? When does he most manifest the glory of God's justice, that God will not allow evil and sin and injustice to continue in our world? When does he most manifest God's unfailing, self-giving, glorious love? It's when Jesus is hung up to die on the cross. And at that moment, there are two people on his right and on his left, the criminals that were crucified alongside him. So literally, Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. But more than that, at at a deeper level, Jesus is saying, "You you don't know what you're asking. You don't know really where you are gonna find the significance that your hearts are deeply longing for. You know, I, I think back to my own search for significance, probably one of the more embarrassing uh, moments of my own self-seeking ambition um, was a moment that I think I shared about in a series back when we did a series on work as worship um, last spring, but it was about eight years ago. I um, had just been ordained as a pastor. I was hoping to get um, called into more of a long-term pastoral role. I'd been in this kind of part-time um, temporary role, and um, I was about to be um, hired at the church that, that we were sent from Highland Park Press. I was about to be hired as the um, pastor of Christian education. And I was really excited about that, thought that was a good um, fit of a role. And the week when all that was supposed to be finalized, I remember getting a call um, from the executive director at the church. And, and, and he said to me, listen, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we're not going to be able to finalize that role um, because our church identified a new senior pastor uh, we're going to bring this, this person in, and we've got to allow um, him to be able to decide who we're going to hire and to make decisions around that. And, and, you know, from my vantage point now, I'd look at that, and I'd think that makes all the sense in the world. But I didn't feel that way then. And I remember being so frustrated. I remember being so irritated. I actually remember calling the, the head of the HR committee and, and saying, this feels like a vote of no confidence. And I cringe. I cringe to remember speaking those words. But, but if Jesus had asked me in that moment, what do you want me to do for you? I would have said that's exactly what I want. I want that job and I want it now because my heart's significance 
was so much tied up in, in wanting to have that role. And, you know, later God worked things out and he worked them out differently and maybe in some ways in, in even a better way, but that's not the point. The point is, is that I think in that moment, Jesus was wanting to teach me, what does it mean for you to let me sift through your desires? To bring your desires to me and then let me sift through them. Let me determine what you really need, what's really for your good. In some cases, to to redirect those desires. In some cases, to say, here's what it means to find your significance, not in the job title, but in me. But, But in that moment, I didn't want that. In that moment, I was so convinced that I knew what was best for me. I knew what was for my good. And that's the disciples here. They believe we're gonna find our significance if we're on your right and if you were on your left. They're so confident that that is true that they're not willing to be corrected. They're not willing to listen to what Jesus has to say to them. It's like they're, they're blinded to reality, but they're also deaf. They're not even listening to what Jesus is saying to him, to them. Did, did, did you catch this? Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? Or can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? And they're like, yes, of course, no problem. Sign us up. We can drink the cup. We can be baptized as long as it means we get the thing that we want from you for our significance. We'll do it. They have no idea what they're saying. Do you know what the cup is? Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm gonna drink? He's talking about drinking the cup of God's wrath as he would go to the cross and as he would take all of the judgment for our sin on himself. Do you know what the baptism is? It's the same thing. Jesus says, I'm gonna be flooded with the waters of God's judgment as I bear your sin upon myself. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? They have no idea what he is talking about. They're so convinced that they know what is best for them, that this is where they're going to find their significance. But Jesus is saying to them, look, I get it. I get that you want significance. We all do. But significance in whose eyes? Significance according to whom? What's the measure of that significance? Significance in whose eyes? Because you see, the reality is, the reality is is that the, the significance that our hearts most long for and need is not the significance that comes in the eyes of other people. Significance that they most need, that we most need, is the significance that comes from God. And Jesus is the only one who can provide that significance. Did you notice in in verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, that, that word ransom... When, when do we use that word? We use that word if, if somebody's been kidnapped, right? And, and, and this person has been kidnapped and now the, the, the kidnapper says, look, if you want this person back, if you want them out of bondage, you have to pay a ransom. And so for Jesus to say, I've come to give my life as a ransom, what does that imply? It implies that we're in bondage. In bondage in a lot of different ways, but can I tell you, one of the ways that we often find ourselves in bondage is the bondage of trying to find our significance in the eyes of other people. 
But if you, if you play that game, if you're always comparing yourself with others, if you're always trying to see where do I stack up, you're always hurt. You're always feeling like you're not enough. You're always feeling inadequate. You're always feeling undervalued or underappreciated. It's a form of bondage. It's life sapping to try to find your significance in the eyes of other people. But when Jesus is saying, look, I've, I've come to pay that ransom to bring you out of bondage, what he's saying is I can give you the significance that your heart really needs. Why? Because look, if, if you know that God was actually willing to pay the greatest possible price in order to have you with him, if you know that Jesus was willing to lay down his very life out of his deep love for you, I mean, nothing can overcome the insecurity of our hearts like seeing that God loves and treasures and values us in such a costly way. And when you believe that, when you, when you take that into your heart, when you see, yes, Jesus, you did give your life as a ransom for me, out of your love for me, what that does is it fills up your heart's longing for significance. So now you don't have to look at other people primarily in terms of how do I measure up with them or what are they thinking about me? Or how can I use them to make myself look more significant? You can begin to actually serve people. You can begin to actually work for their good. Which Jesus says, that's, that's true greatness. That's what Jesus is inviting us into in this story. Jesus says, look, if, if you find your significance through what I've done for you, I cannot just sift through your desires, I can actually redirect your desires. I can renew your desires. I can shape you into the kind of person who actually does find joy and life in serving other people and in serving God. That's the invitation here. But James and John, they're too convinced that they know what's for their good to receive it. They're so confident that they know where they're gonna find their significance that they are immune to Jesus' correction. And so they end up walking away thwarted and distant. But then by contrast, there's Bartimaeus. And you see, Bartimaeus has the same question posed to him by Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And yet Bartimaeus, by contrast, he doesn't walk away thwarted and distant. He walks away satisfied and very close to Jesus, closer than he's ever been before. So more briefly, what can we learn from Bartimaeus and his interaction with Jesus if we also want to walk away satisfied and close? A few things to notice. Here's the first. Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus. Actually, more accurately, Bartimaeus shouts out to Jesus. He, he screams out to Jesus. Did you notice what, what happens? Bartimaeus is blind. Bartimaeus has to beg. He's like somebody sitting on the side of the road holding up a sign. That's the way that he's able to survive is by begging and to make matters worse. The people who are around Jesus, what do they do? They rebuke him. They tell him to be quiet. So what does he do? 
He shouts out all the more. It's almost as if Bartimaeus is saying, really, you want me to be quiet? You want me to be quiet? Do you know who he is? Do you know that this is my one opportunity in my life for my life to be changed for the better? The one person who can change my life truly for my good is walking by and you want me to be quiet? And so he shouts out, he cries out to Jesus. And and can I tell you this? um, here's, Here's how you can be guaranteed that Jesus will never satisfy the desires of your heart. Here's how you can be guaranteed that Jesus will never redirect or correct the desires of your heart. It's if you never ask him. It's if you never cry out to him. If you're so confident that you can meet your own desires, that you're independent, you're self-sufficient, at least James and John ask. At least they bring their desire to Jesus. And Bartimaeus, he doesn't just ask, he shouts it out. He calls out to Jesus with his desire. So he cries out to Jesus, but more than that, what does he cry out for? What is his cry to Jesus? You remember James and John, their cry to Jesus was more like a a, a demand. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And remember, these guys, these disciples, they were already fairly privileged. And they were chosen to get to be among the 12 disciples who would get to follow Jesus. James and John, they were actually among the three that got invited up onto the mountain to see Jesus transfigured in his glory. They had already been given incredible privilege. And isn't it true that sometimes privilege breeds more privilege? Sometimes those who have experienced privilege are more inclined to seek more privilege, to feel entitled to that privilege. And yet by contrast, here's Bartimaeus. He doesn't have any privilege. He's on the margins. He's on the outside of all these people who are following Jesus. And what does he cry out for? He cries out for mercy. Mercy means I'm not entitled. Mercy means you don't owe me anything. Mercy means I don't have any demands to make upon you. I don't deserve for you to do something for me. That's the cry of of mercy. And you know, Jesus, Jesus loves to respond to cries for mercy. What what I love about this, this story is here's Jesus on his way to Jerusalem We're told that shortly before this, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. He knew he was going to Jerusalem to die. He was going to Jerusalem to accomplish the very purpose for which he came into this world. Nothing could get him off track of that mission. And yet when he hears Bartimaeus crying out for mercy, he gets his full attention. He zeroes in on him. He focuses upon him, which for us, maybe that's just a reminder here today that if you ever thought that your cries out to Jesus were not worthy of his attention, see from this story simply the fact that Jesus loves to give mercy to beggars. Jesus loves to give his attention to sinners who cry out for forgiveness. Jesus loves to give his attention to those who would look to him to satisfy their heart's desires. So he turns to to Bartimaeus, 
And, and it's so personal, isn't it? Did you, did you actually know in the Gospels there's no other person who is healed by Jesus whose name is recorded in the Gospels except for that of Bartimaeus? We get his name, so personal. And then Jesus, for his part, he doesn't heal from a distance, but rather he poses this question, a very personal question. He gives Bartimaeus a voice. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus' reply, he asks for something that probably most of us in this room would very much take for granted. He says simply, I want to see. Not I want to see, and it would be great to have a really good, high-paying job as well, or I want to see, and maybe I can see a beautiful woman who could be my spouse. He just simply says, I want to see. And Jesus is done. And the sight is restored. And the question that comes from that, at least for me, is why does Jesus answer his prayer for healing and, and not others? Maybe some of you have, have asked for Jesus to heal something in your life or you've asked him to heal somebody who's very important to you. And, and I don't know the answer to that. In the Gospels, I don't know why he doesn't heal everyone. I don't know why he doesn't answer every prayer for healing today. I, I do know that healing is not heaven. That even after Bartimaeus' eyes were healed, he still had his challenges still had all sorts of issues living in a fallen world. But I do know that Jesus, even if he doesn't always answer exactly what we ask for, I know that he's a savior who loves to meet the needs of his people. He's a savior who loves to satisfy the desires of our hearts. He's a savior who loves to, to satisfy our longing to find our significance to allow us to be those who find that our longings for, 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 for being loved and known and seen are met in him. And I even know for, for Bartimaeus, though he got what he wanted, his eyes were restored. He, he, he got something deeper than that. His desires were met by Jesus in a way even deeper than that. How do I know that? Because look what happens right at the end of this exchange. After Jesus gives Bartimaeus his sight, what does Jesus say to him? He says, now go your way. Now go your way. And what does Bartimaeus do? Right? He, he doesn't run off saying, yes, now I can see finally the Mediterranean Sea. I've never seen the ocean or I'm going to go and, and see my family. Jesus says, go your way. And Bartimaeus says, I'm not going anywhere unless it's with you. He says, Jesus, I'm following you. Because once you've seen Jesus, what is there really else to see? He says, I'm following you. I'm going with you. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John, they leave that exchange feeling thwarted and distant. Bartimaeus, he walks away satisfied and closer to Jesus than he's ever been before. I think the question for us this morning is, how about us? How will we respond to that question? What do you want me to do for you? Are we willing to be honest? Are we willing to tell Jesus the desires on our hearts? And then are we willing to allow him to sift through those? Maybe to redirect those in a different way.
Are we willing to come to Jesus with the faith of Bartimaeus? You know, Bartimaeus is commended for his faith. Do you know what faith is? Faith is the ability to, to get in touch with the deepest desires of our soul and then to be able to bring those to Jesus as the only one who's able to meet them. So let's pray as we come to the Lord's table together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as we come to this table, we're not just looking back on what you did 2,000 years ago, but we are reminded that Jesus, you are alive, that you are risen from the dead, that you are seated at the right hand of your Father in heaven, and that even today, you long to commune with us. We pray that as we come to this table, we would be willing to come with our desires, that we would be willing to come to you, Jesus, and to ask you for the things that we most long for and need, and that we would allow you then to be the one who is able to meet the deepest longings and desires of our hearts. Jesus, we pray that as we commune with you at this table, we would find our significance in being those for whom you are willing to gladly lay down your life. And finding our significance in that way, would you fill us up so that we then in turn would be those who experience true greatness as we are willing to serve and lay down our lives for others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, on the night that our Lord Jesus